1: to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there.
0: This is a chance, of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity.
1: My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Kevin Sharp. Kevin is an English cricket coach and former first-class cricketer. He played 432 professional games and scored nearly 10,000 first-class runs. After retirement, he became a batting coach at his former team Yorkshire, where he helped to develop a number of players who have gone on to represent England, including the current test captain Joe Root. He was also the batting coach for the English women's team, which won the World Cup in 1993. In 2018, he was appointed as head coach of Worcestershire, and that year they won the T20 Championship. Kevin is a coach with a deep passion for helping others overcome the mental anguish and anxiety that he felt as a young batsman. He talks about the pain of living with the thought of underachievement in his career and how this has spurred him on to become the type of coach who can talk confidently on both the physical and mental techniques of first-class cricket. In fact, it was another great coach, Anthony McGrath, who introduced me to Kevin and shared his own experience of using his tools as a player and now as a coach himself. The key highlights of this interview for me were how anxiety can be a good thing if it helps you focus your mind, the importance of finding a mentor or person that you can trust and talk to, to help you deal with the unexplored territory that might be holding you back, the self-talk diary that he now uses with players to help them exert control over their own inner critic and build self-belief, and his love of developing junior talent and the terrific story he shares about meeting Joe Root for the first time. Kevin is the type of wise and calm mentor we all wish we could have in our life, and I hope you get as much from this discussion as I did.
0: The Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Kevin Sharp, good afternoon, or rather good morning, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast.
0: It's great to be here. It's always good to talk. Looking forward to it.
1: We're looking forward to chatting to you too. Love talking a little bit of cricket. And before we get into that, though, I'd like to start with something really simple. Kevin, where are you in the world today and what have you been up to so far?
0: Well, of course, it's been a challenge here in the UK, like everywhere else in the world with the COVID scenario. But as we've just been saying earlier, that I feel so privileged in the elite sporting world that we've still been able to continue. Obviously, we had a two or three months without cricket last summer, but we did get two months in September, well, August and September. And then we've been able to practice full on since December, just gone. That's with the professionals and the academy. So when there's lots of people struggling and sat at home and not working, we've been able to do a few hours a week and the lads are in great shape, really, to to start what will be as normal as it can be, English cricket season in April. Everybody can't wait. I mean, we've got some admin stuff to tie up next week, a few appraisals and some fitness testing. And then we'll be on to outdoor practice the week after two or three practice matches and the first championship matches on the 8th of April.
1: I think we were very lucky to grab you then before you get super busy with the outdoor life that you'll all be enjoying in England while the rest of the world catches up. (laughs) But Kevin, I'd like to just start by talking to you about some of the great coaches that you've experienced. There's people like Paul Fabresi, there's Chris Silverwood, there's, of course, Anthony McGrath, who we've interviewed on this program. And I'd like to just start by asking, what is it you think the great coaches do differently?
0: I think they've got emotional intelligence. I mean, I've done a lot of reading in the past, as well as having my own experiences. And I think these lads, like the guys you've just mentioned, are the good people they communicate well and I think that they're very good at building excellent cultures and environments, healthy ones, where people are happy and they enjoy turning up for work and these lads have got good humour, they've got experience, they've all done their homework, CPD is something that I think is really important for all coaches and these lads will go out and grab all those experiences and talk to others, communicate with others, get the best from others, and they'll relate that back to their group. But having known, I know probably Silvers and Mags a bit more than Farps, but they're just good to be around and people gravitate towards them. They want to talk to them. They want to communicate. They want to hear their stories. I think for me, underlying all this, I mean, this is very much one of my philosophies of coaching as well, is about building trust, and good relationships, because I believe that if you can do that with players, you can take it anywhere. You can chastise, you can put your arm around them, you can take it anywhere. And and I know that coaching one-to-one is different to coaching a team, because everybody's different in a team. However, I think the great coach would understand that, and he would know each individual, and he, he would have an idea on how to communicate with each person. From my own experiences, I mean, with some players, we talk a lot. We'd sit down and talk. With other players, it might just be the odd word. There's still a healthy respect there. So that would be kind of, a, for me, the foundations. I made one or two notes here because your questions are quite challenging, Paul. So I have made them just trying to just quickly have a look at my notes to make sure I haven't sort of missed anything there. But there is one thing that I did, a couple of things. One is the great listeners. This is something I learned very much In the early part of my coaching career, I was told by a a great guy called Gordon Lord, who who ran ECB Coach Education for many years, when I first did my Advanced Coaching Award and I was doing my exams, he said, Kev, you're a good talker, but you don't listen very well. And I said, right. And that was something I learned very early in the piece is about hearing what people say. That's not always easy, especially if you're a talker. (laughs) The other thing I got written down here was they give ownership and trust, not to just the players, but perhaps the coaching team around them as well. And that's something perhaps one of your questions later in the piece, I know one of your questions was about when Worcestershire won the T20 a couple of years ago and when I was head coach. And, and I think that giving trust to others and not breathing down the necks, trusting them to do the job is also breeds motivation and confidence in other people.
1: Well, we'll build up to that Worcestershire question, if that's okay, because I'd like to lay the foundation a little bit first, because I've got this great quote that I found and I'd like to read it back to you before I ask the question. And it says, if you were to ask me what I enjoy most, I do love being the batting coach, but also what I call the cradle to grave stuff. And it got me thinking, could you explain what the cradle to grave stuff is and why you enjoy it so much?
0: Well, I can give you a fantastic example. and he's, he's out in India at the minute, the England test captain, <laughs> Mr Root. And I think, I mean, before I talk, I'd like to talk about Joe a little bit, because I, I knew him from 12 year old and it was very special the day he kind of walked through the door. So but we'll, we'll go on to that. But I think the cradle to the grave, I mean, what I love is, I mean, I've, I've had different jobs in cricket. I've been the batting coach, I've been the second team coach, I've been the first team coach, I've been the head coach, but probably where I've been most suited and at my best is right in the middle of the club, where I'm probably not the lead coach, but it's almost where I've had a foot in the players' camp and also the coaches' camp, and perhaps my personality suits that, so it's kind of like you get the trust and respect of the players, but... Also, you've got your relationship with your own coaches. And I know I've had experiences where, particularly early on in my career, where the lead coach wanted me to share information that some of the players had shared with me and I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I said, it's not to do with you. But this cradle to the grave, going back to that, Paul, is I absolutely love seeing the young guy turn up at 12-year-old into the system, into the youth system, and being part of their journey of From going from youth cricket into academy cricket into second 11 cricket into first team cricket and then seeing him flourish and go on and for some play international cricket. Young Joe walked through the door at 12 years old was about three foot tall blonde hair good looking little kid big smile on his face and I'd never met him up to then what had happened with him is he'd been put on a scholarship by the youth coaches and scholarship was really a a sort of a a recognition of talent, a bit of free kit, that sort of stuff. And we think you're a good player and show us what you can do. So I was actually batting coach at Yorkshire at the time when when Joe first turned up. So what I did was any young player who came on a scholarship, I would invite them to Headingley, meet them, have a chat. And if they wanted to do some work in the nets, that's great. And we get to know each other. And I wanted to make them feel welcome at the club. So I'd arranged to meet Joe at five o'clock one evening his dad Matthew brought him from school and prior to that I was working with Anthony McGrath in the nets at four o'clock for an hour and Mags and I were having a very very sort of challenging session with a new ball I was basically trying to knock his head off and unbeknown to me Joe and his dad had turned up early and they were watching at the back so Mags went I met Joe at five o'clock he came into my office his dad left him with me he didn't come in he said no you haven't so then he came and, and I promise you, it was like having a conversation with an adult He was 12 years old and he could have been 25 years old. His his knowledge of his strengths and his weaknesses were quite phenomenal. So I was, my beans were going because I'm thinking, I've never experienced this before with a lad of this age. So I said to him, right, we've got half an hour. Do you want to go down into the nets and do some work together? He said, yes, please. So I said, right, okay. I said, what do you, what do you want to do? And he looked at me and he smiled. He said, I want you to challenge me. And I was like, what? He said, I said, what do you mean by that? He says, I want the same session Anthony McGrath's just had. And I said, well, I can't do that because I'll hurt you. If I hit you on the head at 12-year-old, I'll lose my job. And he said, no, I'll be all right. So it absolutely, I was like sort of bursting at the seams. I'm thinking, what is going on? So we got down on the shop floor, set a pitch up, eight yards, new ball, three slips, gully, short leg. And I threw at him and I could throw that. And he was just technically superb. And the little voice said, bounce him, Pull him a bouncer. And the other voice said, No, you can't do that, you'll hurt him. And then I bowled him a bouncer. So the voice came back to so I bowled him a bouncer. And he swayed out the way of it. He smiled and he nodded and he looked at me and he said, Oh, he said, That were a good ball, wasn't it? And I knew straight away that we got something special. And I can remember saying to the academy coach after that, I think this lad will open the batting for Yorkshire one day. The rest is sort of history. So it was great to be part of his journey. And And when I left the club, it just, started to play first class cricket then so it was great to be part of that sort of 12 year old to 18 year old journey for him and I think it's something from that day onwards it's something I've always been passionate about the fact is that I love working with the young players as well as the professionals and when you find someone we've got lads around who have got some really high potential, and I I can't help but want to be there and, and see him walk out on, in their debut in a first-class game when you've known them since they were small. So that's what I call the cradle to the grave, Paul. I hope that explains it.
1: Fantastic answer. I loved it. I actually want to pick up on the Anthony McGrath story, if we can, because we, we interviewed him recently, and he, he talked in depth and with a lot of passion about the influence that you had had on helping him build a better internal voice. And he described the idea of a self-talk diary and how he had kept one for the rest of his career and how he often shows it to other players. And I thought it was such a simple but effective idea. And I was wondering if you could explain the process that you use to help players improve their inner voice.
0: Well, perhaps I should tell you the story of what happened with Mags on the first day I met him, because that's where it all began. And it came at a great time, because it, this was just before I'd gone back to work for Yorkshire as a coach. I was coach for the Leeds Bradford University side, who just started the MCCU stuff. And my office was in Bradford, and Mags was a Bradford lad. And he he came along to see an Aussie mate of us, actually. We were playing an Australian Sort of um, representative side, and Magzie knew one of the Aussie lads, and he came across to see this guy, and we bumped into each other by accident, and started chatting. And he asked me if he could come to the uni, and could we do some work together? And I just started my sort of level four coaching award then, and we'd done some terrific stuff, and we just had the session, the psychology module with Dr. Steve Bull, who did a, an awful lot of work with the with the ECB for many years. And I was, I've always been particularly intrigued in the side of things and what, what it was, because I, I had some difficulties myself as a young player, that confidence levels and all those belief and all those things that, that probably affected my performance at times. So I was always quite keen to find out about it and how I could not only help myself, but help others. And so Magsy turned up and we did a bit of batting together and we looked at one or two technical things that might help him. And then I said to him, I said, what, um, would you pl- who do you play next? And he said, Oh, we've got Rose's match against Lancashire on uh, at the weekend. I said, Okay. I said, What's your thoughts about that? He said, Well, Glen Chapel gets me out. I said, Oh. I says, Well, that's it then. He says, What do you mean? I says, Well, you're out already. He's already got you out before the weekend, if that's what you're thinking. So he says, Well, what can I do about that? <laughs> so we got a bit of paper. And I said, And we wrote down, Right. I said, OK, negative column. Glen Chapel gets you out. So we had a negative column and a positive column. Negative column, Glenn Chappell gets you out. I said, um, you ever played well against Glen Chappell? And he, said, he had to think for ages. And he said, oh, I did all right once, yeah, Old Trafford. How many did you get? About 30. Okay. I said, can you remember that innings? Uh, yeah. I said, did you ever hit him for four? And he had to think for a minute or so again. He said, yeah, I did once through the covers. Quite a good shot. I says, can we think about that shot, hitting him through the covers for four? rather than him getting you out. So he says, well, how do I do that? <laughs> I said, right, there's your challenge. So so what we actually put in the positive column was, I played I played well against Glen Chappell before, I can do it again. So those were the two columns. So I said, right, there's your challenge. For the next three days prior to the game, you've got to ask yourself the question 100 times, what do I think about when we play Lancashire? And I said, your natural default will be Glen Chappell gets me out. And I said, I want you to pause that, stop that thought and replace it with, i played well against you before, I'm going to do it again. And he said, oh, right. Anyway, so that was that. So off we went. The following weekend, Saturday, I kept an eye on the teams and the toss. coming Because I, I lived then about half an hour from Edinburgh. So I kept an eye on the teams and the toss. And Yorkshire were going to bat first. So I jumped in the car and drove to Edinburgh. And I got there just after the start of play. And about 20 past 11, Mags came out to bat. 15 for one Yorkshire, something like that, batting number three. And who's bowling? Glen Chapel. And I sat at the back of the stand. And it was, he could have got out any ball for the first 20 minutes. He could have got out any ball for the first 20 minutes. And I could see him in between balls. He was walking away and he could see him physically thinking. He could actually, he was going through these process. Anyway, the bottom line is, he got through that spell. He got through his second spell after lunch and he made 100. He came to a unit that, that next week for another session. So we sat down and he smiled and I said, well, go on then, talk me through it. He says, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. He says, because when he was running into ball, I've just got this he might get me out again and then I had to replace it with this other thought although I can play well against you and then he played the shot so in between balls he was going away trying to replace this negative with the positive and he said I was in bed at 7 o'clock that night I was so mentally tired he made a hundred he'd batted for four hours <laughs> but he says I was so mentally tired I was in bed at 7 o'clock and I slept for 12 hours <laughs> And so that was the start of all that. And I think that, and I, I didn't know as a player what visualisation was, what positive self-talk was. I had no idea. I mean, I can remember as a 17-year-old making a, a fantastic 50 against Middlesex on a minefield of a wicket where virtually a test attack playing for Middlesex. you Wayne Daniels, you Mike Selvis, John Embury, Phil Edmonds. All these people were playing for Middlesex. And I made a, a great 50, and I can remember thinking after that innings that no matter what happens in my career, I know I can do it. I've done it today on this horrible wicket against this, these fantastic bowls. So I know I can do it. And I didn't realise what I was doing, but for the rest of my career, there were times if I was lacking a bit of confidence or self-belief, I would pretend I was batting against Middlesex at Sheffield and it filled me with confidence. I could almost be anywhere. I could be batting in Brighton, Newcastle, Bristol, Birmingham, but I'd pretend I pretend there was batting at Sheffield against Middlesex. It just helped. So, but I didn't know at the time because nobody ever did psychology back in the day when I played. We didn't know what psychology was. A psychologist was a bloke who wore a white coat and took you away in a van. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, in today's day and age now, I mean, our times have changed and there's been so many players have been so open to difficulties, of uh, stress, anxiety, depression. I mean, of late, you know, you've lads like Marcus Tristothic who wrote a fantastic book on his issues that he had. Freddie Flintoff's been quite open about that. Other players since. So there's not the the stigma attached now to... Having difficult times and struggling a little bit. I mean, I've done an awful lot of reading over the years and trying to find out. I've done an NLP course, neuro linguistic programming. I did the master practitioner on that. I just wanted to find out more and more on how you can not just, well, help yourself as well as others.
1: So you talked about self belief there a minute ago because you, of course, captained young England at 19. You were on the verge of senior selection, but it never quite happened. And I've seen interviews with you where you've talked about the issues you had with confidence and self-belief so with all this knowledge you've acquired now and this great story and this great example with Anthony McGrath that has reverberated around the world because he's gone on and used that with others and since I've heard the story I've shared it with at least half a dozen people but if you could go back and talk to that person who was captaining Young England what would you say to them what advice would you give them
0: well for me I think one of the issues that I found is that up to 19, nothing had ever gone wrong. Everything had always gone right. My confidence was high. My focus was spot on. Everything was geared to making runs and doing well. And I'd not had a great upbringing. My parents weren't wealthy at all, but they gave me everything I needed to set me on the way. So I had a great upbringing and a very healthy one, and I was so like, and always fast-tracked as a kid. I was I was playing, I played for Yorkshire under-19s when I was 14. I was the youngest third player to, at the time, to play for Yorkshire at 16 years old. So everything was kind of like, I just naturally thought that everything was going to um, just go from one to another and I'd be a test player. That's what I thought. And there's no reason why I shouldn't think that because it was just real positive thinking. I didn't know anything else, really. I was so happy. And then I just, things went wrong for me off the field and it wasn't anything sort of like unusual, a relationship, first relationship with a female. I'd never had one before that meant anything and that didn't go so well and I struggled with it and I'd never had this before. And then it just started to kind of affect my performance because my concentration wasn't as good. I didn't feel as confident. I was thinking about other things off the field that affected my kind of performance on it. And that was tough because I didn't know how to handle it. Because I'd never been there before, it was almost like unexplored territory. What do I do about this? And, and I think in those days, really, there wasn't many people, anyone to talk to, really. We didn't have the lifestyle managers now or sports psychologists that the players can relate to and talk to. And so I felt lonely, I felt on my own, I didn't know how to manage it and I went off the rails for a while, to be honest, and I knew that I'd never quite achieved. I mean, although I had a healthy career and did pretty well in first-class cricket, I always felt, I always lived with that thought of, of underachievement, really. I made 10,000 first-class runs, I made 5,000 one-day runs, but some of my mates went on and played for England and I, I struggled with it because I thought it should have been me.
1: So what would you say, Kevin, if that young person was sitting opposite you now? Yeah. What would you say to them?
0: Well, I'd say, talk to me, share how you're feeling. Trust me, because you're young and you're inexperienced, and it's okay to feel how you feel. It's not unusual. There's nothing wrong with you. You're growing up. That's what's all that's happening is that you're finding out and growing up. And and that can be massively challenging especially when you get into unexplored territory. So if find someone that you can believe in and trust and talk to them and let them help you. Because I found that uh, I had some counselling when I was 34 years old, and it's the best thing I ever did because it set me on the next part of my career. All those things from being 20 years old up to 34 that were hard to manage, they built up and built up over a period of time until eventually I had to go talk to someone about it. And that was... All I did was talk. And and I think, Paul, I mean, it's kind of, I have these conversations every day with lads now who might be finding it difficult and struggling a little bit, is that it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to get it wrong. It's good to have a good day, but it's also actually, whether you believe it or not, it's also quite good to have a not-so-good day where you don't get it right, because that's where you often learn best if you get it wrong. Problem is, is if we keep getting it wrong for 10 years. <laughs> that's a, that's a great answer,
1: Kevin. I can I can see why that experience has helped you become the coach you are today. But there was also another experience I wouldn't mind bringing up with you that I think may have helped shape you as a coach too, because from 18 to 24, you were lucky enough to play cricket abroad, Australia and South Africa. And you just a minute ago told me that you boarded uh, in Australia with possibly one of the greatest coaches of all time, at least in this part of the world, Rick Charlesworth. It yeah. must have been such a great learning experience. How do you think it's shaped you now as a coach?
0: Well, I mean, that first experience living with Rick and talking to you about travelling with the Western Australian side with that, my scholarship I was on, I was so happy then and full of confidence and belief. It was just like living the dream. I can remember turning up in Australia at midnight and Rick and Chris Tabaret picking me up from the airport in Perth. Where I was, I got up at five o'clock in the morning and there's parrots flying around. I've never been, I've never been out of England. But. So that early experience was, was special. And then it got a bit more real, really, because I had a lovely time. I played for Subiaco Florey in Perth. And, and then I went back there and I had another two seasons there. But some really challenging experiences on the way, to be honest, because in my second season, I had to come back with a back injury and I had to spend three months at St. James Hospital in Leeds with a, with a back problem which was difficult. And then I went back. And then during that time is when I sort of started to have some difficulties off the field and lacked a bit of confidence. So the third year I went back to Perth, I had an incredibly challenging season. I I made no runs at all from October to Christmas. And I was getting abused left, right and centres by these Aussies, calling me a useless pom because you're supposed to be a professional and you don't know how to bat. And all that sort of thing went on for three months. But somehow there was something in there that there was this inner, some sort of resilience building, I think, and and inner belief that said, no, you can do this. And I can remember even over the Christmas period that when it was holiday time, I practised every day. And I'm getting ready for January, you know, that two or three week break in Australia. My first knock in January, I was so nervous, thinking, oh, God, I hope this doesn't happen again. But I made 500s in seven innings and won the batting average. And I think think what I'm trying to say with all this is that Being away from home, having to fend for yourself and spending a lot of time on your own, it was quite lonely at times. And then it followed by three winters in South Africa where I was in the middle, I worked for De Beers, the diamond company in Kimberley, and it was a quiet place and I was a young lad of 20, 21 years old, spending hours and hours on my own, playing cricket a weekend and there wasn't masses to do socially. Fortunately, I met some very good friends at the cricket club and they'd often invite me around for the old and all that sort of thing. I think I had to do my own washing at times and I, I had to, I can remember shrinking my cricket trousers in a washing machine and not having any for the weekend and having to go to a sports shop and buy some on a Saturday morning before cricket and just those those little life experiences, I think. I think the answer to it all is it built resilience because the way it wasn't always hunky-dory, if you like. It wasn't always fun, although there's some great times in there. And I, I think it just it matures you. And I think that through all the years, that resilience that started to build, I think has been probably the foundation of, of helping me still be in a game now at 61 years old and still enjoying doing what I'm doing.
1: And I heard an interview with you recently where you very briefly in the interview, you talked about the ideas of Buddhism and how they connected with you, but then you jumped on very quickly. And I was intrigued by that because I've also heard you talk about anxiety and the fact that it can actually bring out the best in a player. And I wanted to ask you, how do you find that balance? How do you coach someone to find the right balance between too much anxiety and not enough?
0: It's not easy. (laughs) You don't know. I don't think you know if you've done it or not. I mean, looking at some of the players that I've worked with, the ones who manage that best are the ones who enjoy it most, the ones who live in the moment. And it's kind of like they're enjoying being there and they're not concerned about... There's no fear of failure. I've known players who it's almost they care too much. And if it hasn't gone to plan, it hurts too much, and it lasts for too long, and they get themselves in a little bit of a tiz. I mean, I, I know I think I'm right in saying that when I talk about living in the zone and enjoying it, and not been living in the past or the future. I think anxiety is is excellent because I think that the right level of it is allows you to be at your best. I was anxious before I came on here with you because I want to do well. I want to to give some responses to your to your questions, but I think it's healthy because it it kind of focuses the mind a bit. And once you get going, you kind of relax a little bit and you get more and more focused, I think, as you go along. I can think I can give one example of living in the zone and in the moment. I believe that when my friend Mr Root played his first test match at Brisbane in the Ashes a few years ago now, I believe I'm right in saying when you think of the area, so it's midnight in England it's Brisbane it's the first ball of the ashes the whole cricket world's watching everybody in England stayed up till 12 o'clock to watch that first ball come down and I think it wasn't long don't think it was long before Joe got to the crease but I believe he was greeted by Mitchell Johnson who very early in the piece smashed him in the chest and said a few choice words to him as an Australian would (laughs) (laughs) No <laughs> me feel like he said, welcome to Australia, Joe. <laughs> Let me just repeat, no comment. <laughs> no comment. So he's hit him in the chest. He said a few choice words. And Joe's wandered down the pitch, bearing in mind he's not played a lot of Test cricket yet. This is the first game of the Ashes. And I think, I believe, he looked up at Mitch and Johnson and said, it's great out here, isn't it? <laughs> He said to him, we're playing test cricket, me and you, aren't we? And I think Mitchell Johnson must have looked at him and said, what's this? And then he went to walk away and then he came back, did Joe? And he said to him, and what's more, we're on telly as well, aren't we? (laughs) So he would have been anxious and nervous, yet that he still had the balance of being able to live in that moment and enjoy that moment. I would call it smell the flowers, if you like. And you know that... Obviously, we we get players who are too anxious. And I, Do you know what, Paul? I, I think I've seen sometimes that what can happen to players is that as a kid, when they're growing up, they enjoy it and they play to their potential and they're living in this zone and they're doing... I would often ask a player, when you made that 100, what were you thinking? What were you doing? What was going on upstairs? And they generally say, I really just enjoyed it. Smelled the leather and it really... Felt The body movements and your hands and your head getting into the shot and all, all those things. When a player's had a good day, he would say those things. And I think one of the issues that we might have for some is that they've got this as a kid, but when they get into the professional world, it becomes a job. And it's kind of like, I've got to pay the gas bill now. I've got to pay the, the mortgage. I've got a car to pay for. I've got food to buy. I mean, somebody once said to me, I'll never forget this, ever forget this. They said to me, when you're 20, you've got the face you were born with. When you're 40, you've got the face that life gave you. And when you're 60, you've got the face you deserve. And Well, I'm 60 now, so I don't know what you think. But but I think what they were trying to say is up to 20, you get everything generally put on a plate for you. And then in between 20 and 40, that's where your greatest learnings come all the responsibilities that you get in life, jobs, bills to pay. By the time you're 40, you should have sorted that out and you should be able to have a decent life from then on. <laughs> but I think that there's a lot of pressure comes on when it becomes for real for a job, and that creates more anxiety. And all we can do is provide support, empathy, um, understanding. There's more, it's not just coaches, coaches are not psychologists. We do have sports psychologists. We have a every club has its sports psychologist. Every club has its welfare officer who works for the PCA. So any player now has got all sorts of routes to go down to help them deal with such issues. Kevin, can I
1: take you back, perhaps to the time you were around about forty? If I got my maths right, you were part of the coaching setup for the England women's team when they won the World Cup in '93. I was. And they were coached by the pioneer and legendary coach, Ruth Perdeau. What was it like working with such a pioneering and groundbreaking individual?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'd only just finished playing. I'd only just finished my playing career and it was very early days as a coach for me and I was invited as one of two male coaches to go spend the, the time to prepare for that World Cup in England. You know, I was pretty, I think well, naive as a coach. And when I first met Ruth, she just had presence. That's the best thing I could say. She was kind of like so respected. When she spoke, you listened. Everybody listened. But she got such a, a nice manner about her that she created that culture and environment that we talked about earlier. You felt as though you were... She made you feel part of a team. She gave you that trust and ownership that the other coaches have done that we talked about. So you felt really kind of like responsible and playing your part. She allowed fun, laughter. However, it had to be professional. So fun and laughter was at the right time, not at the wrong time. Because when it comes down to training and practice and preparation, get on with it now. But she didn't almost have to say that. You knew it. And she was adored by the girl. They thought that they would have done anything to look after her. That environment, I mean, I was then involved for a month of sort of pre-tournament and then was invited to spend the whole tournament with myself and a coach called John Bowne and then went right the way through to a Lord's final. And, I mean, the girls were like, they treated us like just part of the team. There was no male or female difference. It was just we're part of the team. I'll, and I'll never forget that we played, uh, beat Australia in the semi final and played New Zealand in the final at Lords. And it, it was a bizarre thing because both teams stayed in the same hotel in London and travelled on the same coach to the ground, right? And I can remember our girls were so, you we talk about English being a bit reserved. Well, this lot wasn't. And this was the environment Ruth, Ruth had created because they were kind of really, really up for it. And I can remember having breakfast that morning and both teams were in the breakfast room and our girls were actually like uh, staring at the Kiwis across the breakfast tables, like not saying anything, just staring them out. And I'm thinking, I said to, I can remember saying to John, he fell on a mail coat, I said, there's only one winner today, you know. I said, look at this here. I said, they're just staring them out over breakfast. And so my Kiwi girls wouldn't, couldn't make eye contact with them. And we got on this bus and all the Kiwi girls were on this bus first and they were sat at the front. And all our girls got on, last we got on, and all our girls were like looking at them one for one all the way down the bus. And we went and sat at the back and there was a Yorkshire lass called Claire Taylor who started, put the the music on, the ghetto blaster, and she put one of them Tina Turner songs on, Simply the Best, and she sang it loud at the back of this bus <laughs> and it was like I just looked at John I can remember saying there's only one winner today we'll win this game comfortably and I think we pretty much did and Ruth was the hub of that I know she sadly passed away a few years ago probably five or six years ago I guess now but it was a wonderful memory and I suppose that when you and it, I'm so pleased you asked this question really because I would never would have thought about it how it might have shaped my coaching I think that The one thing that we all do is learn from others as we go along through life. You've got your mentors and the people that you've respected and watched how they do it and learn from it. And um, I would never have sort of probably said openly that that Ruth would have given me some foundation as a coach because it's such a long time ago. We're going back to 1993 now. I would have loved
1: to have interviewed Ruth, I think, She's any coach that pioneers in the way that she did and also wins a World Cup final at Lords, <laughs> Would be yeah. an amazing person to interview. Yeah, sadly,
0: she...
1: sadly, we won't get that opportunity. No. But talking about championships, you started off at the start by saying 2018, you're coaching Worcester and the T20 team win the championship. Mm. And that was your first year as their coach. <laughs> I know. What did you do in that at the start of the season that drove that result?
0: Well, I'd never won a trophy as a coach before either. So that was kind of like a bit special in itself. That day at Edgebaston was something else. And we can go on to that. But um, the year before finished, it was a difficult year for the club because Steve Rhodes, the former director of cricket head coach, left the club at the end of the year. We'd been there since you we were 20 year old as a player and as a coach. And, you know, Steve had run a great ship at Worcester. And it was, the way he did things was quite embedded in the club culture and environment. I think Worcester, it would be fair to say that it's always been a club that's punched above its weight a bit. It's not a test playing ground where the, it's not an baston or a, a Lords or a, an Oval or a Headingley or an Old Trafford, Trent Bridge. It's, it's a club that has been pretty successful over the years without being the ones that perhaps play on the test grounds. And but we had to consolidate a bit, really. And the thing, this is the interesting thing is now, Paul, is that I had really no aspirations at all to be head coach. I was second team coach. I was club batting coach. And Steve left at the end of the year. And I can remember thinking at the time, that, I can remember thinking that what well, the one thing we don't need here is someone coming in beating a big stick at this moment in time? We're all we're all a bit bruised and battered here. We just need to consolidate a little bit. We got into and I'm of course wondering what might happen. And then I was approached by the club and asked me if I would be interested in doing the job that you're respected here. The lads believing you, we think this would be a good move at this point. And I'd never considered myself. I think probably because I'd always seen myself sat in the middle of a club with that foot in a player's camp foot in a foot in a coach's camp and probably knowing that the lead coach is probably a, a bit more of a lonely place if you like you've got i knew what would be difficult decisions to make on players on contracts on selection probably as well would have been the, the one thing that i knew would be challenging for me. But they kind of was asked if I would do the job and they were very clear in saying that you've been here for, with us for, for five years now and there's a lot of belief and trust in trusting you and we want you to do it. And so the captain was, I talked to the captain and he he said, the lads are really up for this. I needed to know that. I didn't want them thinking, you oh know, God, why aren't we getting an international who's out there or whatever who's been there and done it you know sort of thing but no there was a lot of support from within and and I think that what we did I mean Matthew Mason who's now in Perth Matthew also left the club just early in January so he was like assistant coach to Steve he went home to go to Leicestershire I mean he's, he's back in Perth now so basically what we did was we, we basically lost Steve and Matthew at nearly the same time and so then I was made head coach so then what we did we appointed. Alan Richardson as bowling coach, who would come in as assistant coach to myself. And then we brought in Alex Gidman to run the second 11. Now, Alex is from Gloucestershire, played for Gloucestershire captain, Gloucestershire in a very successful, particularly one-day team. And he was starting his coaching career. He'd done a little bit of work with the MCC Young Cricketers. And I'd, he'd played for Worcester there a couple of years before and I had a particularly good relationship with him when he was playing. I found him fascinating because of his strategies and the way he thought outside the box. So I was delighted when he accepted the position of second team coach. And so basically what happened, we started to see, and I said very clear to the lads, that we we brought one or two people in. We did a bit of team building. I brought a guy in from the former army guy to do a bit of team building. It was very interesting. So we we did some team building stuff. Uh, But I was very clear to the group that I want you to take ownership for this and I want everybody to do their bit to help us play well and I think everybody responded to that there was kind of like a real maturity that said yeah okay we know that this is things have changed let's all stand up and be counted and so we started the the red ball season and we kind of did okay and then when we got around to the 50 over comp, I started to bring Alex Gidman into the fold to start to help run sessions because of his experience in one-day cricket with Boston and captain and his leadership skills. And it pretty much through the 50 over comp, Alan and Alex pretty much ran the prep, the warm-ups, and I became a, I don't know what you'd call it, the lead father figure, if you like, and allowing these guys to, to really develop. And express themselves, And I watched it and I thought, God, these are doing these guys are doing a good job here. And I loved it. And and then we got to the T20 Cup. And I just allowed that to continue. I said, right, I want you to run this show this, you lot. Then I had a, a very good relationship with Moin Ali. And now Moe's a legend. Everybody loves him at the club. He loves the club. He played quite a lot for us that year. And he had been already, he was. If he played for Worcester, he was going to be T20 captain. So I just said to Mo, look, I told him, I explained to him fully about Alan and Alex, what their roles were. I said, I'm here to oversee this, support this. I said, I want you to run the show as captain, pick the teams between us, but you'll get what you want at the end of the day. And Mo was so receptive to that. And we we got to a quarter fine. And the club had Worcestershire was only one of two clubs who'd never been to a T20 finals day, us and Derbyshire. And we got to this quarter final, and it was a weird situation, a weird day, because we played Gloucestershire at New Roads, a full house, 6,000. And the atmosphere was so quiet and restrained for a T20 game. And it was almost like all the members were just willing us to win and get to a final. And you could feel the tension in the dressing room, actually. And we hadn't really had that up to then. And I think it was because everybody knew that we'd never got past a quarter-final before. We'd lost about four quarter-finals. And everybody really was so desperate to, to, to win this game. And so the tension was quite palpable, really. And Gloucester didn't make that many, 130-odd. And, and it could have gone either way. And, and a magnificent innings from Callum Ferguson got us over the line. What a guy you are. I loved Callum. He was just dreadful for Worcester cricket. Just ever so well for us. And it got us over the line and got us to to Edgebaston. And everybody was so relieved. Of the lead up to the final, we were probably the underdogs with John Lancashire in the first game. Um, Somerset and Sussex were the other semi-final. But I kind of, we were all just so looking forward to it and so relaxed and focused. And the day before, we had a team chat on the field. So there's about a squad of 15 players, coaches, support staff, physio, S&C, were on the field. And Mowin pulled everybody round and he said something I'll never forget. And it was, he just got everybody in a circle. He was silent, waiting for more to speak. And he didn't say anything. He just looked around the group, man for man, and looked at everyone and nodded, which took him about a minute and a half. And it was like, wow, what's going on? And then he said, all he said was, I want everybody to expect to play two games tomorrow. Right, let's crack on and do this. That was his team chat. And I stood there. Everybody then went off to the various groups to trade. And I stood there and I thought, I got goosebumps. And I knew we'd win. It was just one of them. And I thought, what he's done, what he's actually done there, he's he's actually said we're going to win without saying it. That's what he did. And, you know, Mo's a smart lad. And the next morning... On finals day, from nine o'clock in the morning, of course the Holly Stand they're singing "Sweet Caroline," and we've got the dressing room, the away dressing room, right next to the Holly Stand. So the atmosphere was electric right from nine o'clock in the morning. And of course, we got over the line in the first game, and we won the final. And you know, the Holly Stand was still singing at ten o'clock at night, and it was just the final could have gone either way. Five overs to go, you weren't sure. But then suddenly Ben Cox, our wicketkeeper, played a master innings and played ever so well against Chris Jordan and Archer and got us over the line and we had a party. But I think going back to what he's saying, I think for me it was about everyone. I don't think as a league coach, I was always kind of slightly out of my comfort zone with it when it came to selection because like, for example, Ben Cox, the wicketkeeper batsman, I left him out the championship team the week before the finals. He'd not been quite at his best with the bat. Another lad had come in. Ben had got injured. Another lad came in and made a hundred on his debut as wicketkeeper batsman. And I left Ben out the team. And there were, I canvassed opinion on this of fellow coaches and one or two people that I trusted closely at the club. And it was mixed opinion that some said, "Yeah, fair decision." Others said, "Well, you know what if it." makes a mess of him for next Saturday or whatever, finals day. I'd always, as a coach, I knew that at the start of that season, I would have to make some difficult decisions. And my personality being sort of, suppose, as I am, I'm quite an emotional person, I think. I promised myself that I would never dodge any difficult decision. But if I knew it was the right, I thought, and I know these things are subjective, but if I thought it was the right decision to make, I, I wouldn't dodge it and sweep it under the carpet, I'd make it. And I did, and I left Ben out, and it was difficult because we had to have some difficult conversations about it. And But in all fairness to him, he went away. He trained hard that week. He got 100 in the second 11, and he came back on the Saturday, and he was man of the match in both games with the bat and kept beautifully. I made the right decision.
1: <laughs> now, speaking about batting, yeah. you are an elite batting coach, and... There are a few batsmen out there with very quirky styles that are proving successful. The most notable example is Steve Smith. What do you think about batsmen with
0: quirky or different styles? Well, I admire it. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't teach it, but I admire it. And uh, I, Do you know what it brings me back to watching Steve Smith bat? A few years ago, I did um, some research on Sir Donald Bradman now I've got a picture of Sir Donald Bradman up on my hall up here that was painted by Jack Russell many years ago. He's, he's the famous Australian. He's in on the wall of my house here. I watched, I did some research on this fellow, Sir Donald Bradman, and, of course, he grew up with a, a golf ball and a stump in his home in Australia where he, I believe, he threw the ball against the wall, the golf ball against the wall, and his stump with his bottom hand, he'd pick it up and he'd put Pull it out to point and bring it back round, and then he'd put his top hand on and play the golf ball with the stump. So he developed from being a child this technique that we might consider unusual. And I've seen some of the videos, and he does. He picks his bat up out to point, he brings it round, but yet he presents the full face of the bat to the ball. Now Steve Smith's got a similar style, I think, and he moves around in the crease everywhere. However, on the point of contact, he presents the bat to the ball. Now there's not many people could do that. There's been other people. Chander Paul had that really wide stance and then he aligned himself. And there's been other players in the past who Steve Smith, the South African, had a very bottom-handed grip and he closed the face on the bat on the offside. But yet he made a lot of test runs and a very successful career. So I think as a coach, if it's unusual or unorthodox, I think you've got to ask yourself the question, does it work? Is it successful? Is it something that might need to change against higher class bowling? If the bowling becomes of a higher standard, can you get away with that technique? And I think you have to trust your own experiences and your judgment whether you need to decide whether to change a player. But it's something like Smith. I'd love to have a conversation with him. I would love to talk about batting with him and ask him about it. I can imagine going into a hall with a bunch of 16-year-olds and saying, right, we're gonna, we're all going to bat like Steve Smith? I don't think you get a lot of success. It's only Steve Smith knows how to do that. So so generally, we teach the basics, don't we? As a batter, we grip the backswing, the alignment, the balance, all those things, fairly orthodox, knowing that everybody arrives at the bus stop slightly differently. The only non-negotiable for me as a batting coach is that uh, I'd always say you need to have your, your head still and your eyes level on the point of release when the bowler lets the ball go. That would allow you then to judge length best. If your eyes are like that or your head's moving like that, it's hard to judge where a ball, a ball coming down at 80, 90 miles an hour, is not easy to do. But this fella Smith, he gets on the point of release, he's in a good position and good on him. I just love... To have a conversation about it and ask him about it, and he did play at Worcester, you know, back in the day, in his in his early days, he did have he did play some cricket for Worcestershire. Maybe you'll introduce me to him one day, Paul.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if he becomes a great coach. It's only great coaches on this show, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, you've had a great career. It's a long career. You're still going. You've got such energy and positivity, and you know people. Your ex players are still engaged with you and talking with you, and I'd just like to ask one final question, and it's around legacy. I'd like to hear what you think your legacy is.
0: Well, I think if it's that bit about the old gravestone, in it, and what would you have? What would you like to have written on it? I think that I'd like to people to think that they could trust me, and that I helped them throughout their career, so that I was always someone that they could bounce off, and particularly. Well, not just in times of of need, but any time. I'd like to think people had learned from me and I was a good bloke, good company, hopefully, have a beer with. And I'd like to think that, I think that hopefully one of my strengths is that I can, I'm quite a good connector between people. And probably I'd like people to think that I cared about them. And I think that that's important for me. And I think that, Having been through some of the difficulties myself as a player and felt as though I'd underachieved a bit, I've never wanted any player I've worked with to go through some of the stuff I went through, some of the sort of mental anguish and pain that I felt. So I'd like, hopefully I have been, I can recognise it if someone is in a place where they need some support.
1: Well, I'd like to challenge you if I could because there's a word you didn't mention there and it's a word I think that flows through your story from that time when you were younger through to the work with Anthony McGrath, through to that wonderful story you just shared about Worcester and how you stepped back and empowered the players. And I think the word is self-belief. And I think it's a story of building self-belief in yourself and then learning to do it so well that you are able to pass that on to others. But that's just my reading from afar.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you.
1: Kevin, it's been wonderful listening to your stories and interviewing today. I thank you so much for your time. Can't wait to share these stories, uh, especially with my dad, who loves a bit of uh, Yorkshire understatement. Right. (laughs) All the best for the cricket season ahead, and I look forward to talking to you in the future.
0: Thank you very much, Paul. I really enjoyed that. Thank you.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Paul here, and you have been listening to the great coach, Kevin Sharp. The key highlights for me were Kevin's wanting to leave a legacy where the mental pain and anguish he experienced as a player is transformed into positive care and help for those he has coached. How his focus on not being afraid to make hard decisions helped win the T20 Championship in 2018, and the importance of coaches offering support, empathy and understanding, but also knowing when to bring in psychological or welfare specialists when needed. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go, if you are one of the people who has listened to our podcast in one of the 50,000 times it has been played, and you have any feedback, an element of leadership you would like us to explore, or know a great coach that you think we should interview, then please let us know. You can contact us
0: using the details in the show notes.